Good morning. The scripture this morning is from Nehemiah 2. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, if you brought your Bible with you, open up to the book of Nehemiah or pull it up on your phone as we follow along here. Um, We are going through the whole Bible this year as a church. If you're visiting with us, we've been going from Genesis to Revelation from January to December. And the reason we're doing this is to help you get a picture of how the whole Bible fits together, how all the things in there point to Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. So the reason we're going through the whole Bible is to help you feel confident that as you read the Bible, you understand how it fits together, the whole story it's telling, and uh, where things lie throughout, or where they where they lay throughout the course of the Bible together, not where they lie. That's a different thing. Well, towards that end, should we just start over? Like, have the birthday boy come back up, we can start again, all right. Towards that end, I wanted to explain a little bit about where we are in the Old Testament at the start of our sermon today. So we have been going through uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, that's called the Pentateuch, and then we've been going through the history books for the last couple months. The history books are, are all the way from Joshua and through next week, we'll finish them in the book of Esther. And they're a big chunk of the Old Testament, and they show us the, the story of how God's people went from being a nation in exile uh, in Exodus all the way up until the time, about 400 years before the time of Jesus. And then after we finish the uh, history books, we'll read some of the writings. That's like Job, Psalms, Proverbs. And then we'll get into the prophets, and that'll be the rest of the Old Testament. And the prophets will take us, again, through some of the same events from the history books, but from a different perspective. So I wanted to explain a little bit how the Old Testament fits together through four sort of tent posts. And this has been helpful for me. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you. So imagine these are all all 500 years apart. So imagine you're 2000 BC. 2000 BC is associated with Abraham. This is the beginning, towards the beginning of Genesis. This is Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. So Abraham is 2000 BC. You go forward about 500 years, you get David, uh, Moses, Moses. Um, about 1500 BC is Moses, the Exodus, leading the people out of Israel, the writing of uh, the Pentateuch, let my people go, all that. That's 1500 BC. 500 years later is David, the beginning of the kingdom. That's 1000 that's a BC. And then about 500 BC, you get the events of the exile to Babylon. 
This is where we are in our passage today, at about 500 BC. So we've gone from Abraham and the starting of a country through a family, to Moses and the leading the people into the promised land, David and the establishment of the kingdom, and now we're into the Exodus and the results of the Exodus, um, the exile. I'm sorry, I, I'm going to blame it on the kids because they're not here, so I'll just blame it on my kids keep me up at night. <laughs> All right, and so we're going to deal with the book of Nehemiah today, and Nehemiah is a wonderful book because it shows us God's heart for people even after they've rebelled against him. So uh, Justin talked about this last week, but if you weren't here, the Exodus, again, 500 BC, is the result of Israel. I'm going to do that all sermon, aren't I? The exile, the exile, exile, the exile to, to Babylon is a result of Israel's sinful rebellion against God and their refusal to worship him alone. And so for 70 years, the people, spend, uh, the people of Israel spend in Babylon in exile because of their disobedience towards God. Tom, is there anything I can do about the mic thing or is just talk louder? Okay, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just try this again oh, from over on this side because um, these people are messing me up over there. All right. <laughs> they spend 70 years in exile because of their rebellion against God and their unwillingness to serve him alone. At the end of the exile, God leads the people back to Jerusalem and back to the promised land and gives them another chance to obey God and be faithful to him. And we saw last week in what Pastor Justin talked about, how that took the form of religious reforms and a rebuilding of the temple. But you know, it turns out that religious reforms are not enough for a well-thriving society. Ezra and what he's done is important, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And so we pick up in Nehemiah today, how can we have a civic society when even if the religious reforms have happened, there's a lot of other problems that need to be dealt with. And that's what Nehemiah is about. This book is really told from the eyes of the narrator, from the eyes of Nehemiah, and he talks about his choices and his decision to take great risks to serve God. So let's pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, beautiful name for a girl. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year that I was in Susa, the citadel. Um, just a quick note on that. Nehemiah is writing the beginning of this book from a position of privilege and a position of comfort. He's in what's called the citadel. That is the center of authority and power in the Persian Empire at the time. He's been the most successful uh, that you could expect to be as a refugee and an immigrant into this foreign land. Nehemiah was almost certainly born into a family that had been exiled uh, from Israel. That is, he'd been born in Persia. He's a second-generation immigrant, we might say. Um, and he, against all odds, has gone from a refugee status, an immigrant family status, being an outsider, an outcast, to rising up the ranks of leadership and authority in the Persian Empire all the way up to the place of being a trusted confidant of the king. Those of you guys who come from immigrant families or maybe immigrated yourself, know how difficult that can be sometimes, to be accepted and uh, honored in your new home country. And Nehemiah had succeeded at this, he, but he doesn't forget where he comes from, and he cares deeply about his homeland. Years have passed since a group, uh, which we read about last week in Ezra, have gone out to try to reform and to renew some of the problems in Jerusalem, and he cares about what happens. So he waits for them to come back and hear a report. And this is what happens in verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had arrived, who had survived the exile, 
is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what's happening here? Nehemiah hears that even though there had been some religious reforms in Israel, there were still great civic problems there. And from a place of comfort, privilege, and power, Nehemiah recognizes and identifies with the people who are being oppressed in Jerusalem, and he weeps over the pain that they're experiencing. Now, it's easy for us to cry over our own pain, but to weep over the pain of another is a sign of maturity and empathy. And for Nehemiah, it's a sign that he cares deeply about what's in the heart of God. He knows that this is not his problem, and yet it is deeply close to his heart because it's close to the heart of God. Well, to understand the book of Nehemiah, you kind of need to understand this wall thing. Like, why is the wall such a big deal? Um, in the ancient world, it's different than today. In the ancient world, a city's wall was its, essentially its police force, its way to have law and order. A city like Jerusalem had a wall in order to prevent itself from being raided by uh, marauders and by raiders who would take things um, from the weaker among the community. And as we see later in Nehemiah, it was especially the widow and the poor who were at risk. Because when there's lawlessness, the strong can defend themselves, but the weak can't. And so the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem so that the society will be secure, that the poor will be defended, and that the weak will have someone to advocate for them. And it's even more than that. It's about the character and reputation of God. Nehemiah is grieved because the broken down wall shows something to their neighboring countries about what God is like. And in this case, something misleading about what God is like. Now, the broken down wall is near to the heart of God, not just because of what it says about him, but how it impacts the people around him. And because of that, it's close to Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah has successfully made a life for himself in his adopted homeland, but he knows that the people where he comes from don't have such luxury. And so he makes a choice, a choice that many of us choose not to make or are scared of making, which is, am I going to feel the weight of the pain of the people that I don't have to feel the weight and pain of. I, I love Nehemiah's book because it gives us a wider picture of what it means to engage in ministry than what we normally get. You know, normally, if someone in our church says, you know, I'm thinking about going into ministry, usually they mean being a pastor, being a missionary, maybe being a seminary professor or a writer. Those are all great. Like, I love those. I love being a pastor. If you want to do that, I'd love to help you. But you know what? In, in Nehemiah, we see a broader picture of what it means to work for the shalom of their community. I love that Nehemiah and Ezra are actually in the Hebrew Bible. They're one book of the Bible. Because with Ezra, we see the religious leadership that's necessary for a society to thrive. And with Nehemiah, we see the secular or civic leadership that's necessary for a society to thrive. And they're, they're both important for renewal to come. Nehemiah's civic and his construction work is really near to the heart of God. And I think that a lot of your guys' work is just as near to the heart of God. And I hope that you honor that and see that as well. The way that some of you are, are school teachers or you work in the foster care system or you have created a business to provide jobs for people or you lead a construction crew, like all those things can be near to the heart of God as well. For Nehemiah, he had arisen to this role in his profession, not just for his sake, but ultimately we'll find out for the sake of God carrying out this great plan to renew Jerusalem. His career was not his career alone, but for God's purposes. 
He was now what's called the cupbearer to the king, we find out at the end of chapter one. It's sort of a cross between being a secret service agent and being a personal assistant. Um, He was the one who was designed to keep the king safe at all costs. And he was the one who was there to give advice to the king on who was to be trusted and not trusted. It was an important role. It wasn't just being a waiter. It was being a personal attache to the king. And it's an immigrant and a refugee who holds that role. This is probably surprising to most of us because usually uh, we picture the Persian army or the Persian empire or we picture any sort of empire as being closed off to people who are not like them. And Nehemiah has risen through the midst of that to be the most trusted person at the king's right hand and the one who has the authority and the uh, access to be able to be trusted by the king. And what's he going to do with that access? What's he going to do with that authority? What's he going to do with that privilege? For Nehemiah, he's going to take a great risk, a risk that could be perceived as an act of treason because of what God has put on his heart. Look at Nehemiah 2, verse 2 to 5. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I love this narrative note here. Then I was very much afraid. Why was he so afraid? He was afraid of his emotions? Was he just being a man? Why was he afraid? I thought that was funny. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) No, he's afraid because the Persian king is a capricious and uh, megalomaniac man. We'll find that out next week in, in the book of Esther. He's killed a lot of people, probably in Nehemiah's presence, for a lot worse things than being sad in front of him. And Nehemiah is scared. Like, what's he going to say? Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Let me live forever. um, (laughs) Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is the moment of truth. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So why is this such a risk to take? Why is he taking such a big risk for God? Like, why do I describe it that way? Well, you got to remember, why was Jerusalem destroyed? Because Jerusalem had rebelled against this king's predecessor. And he's asking, hey, can you let me go back hundreds of miles away and rebuild a city that's known for insurrection against empire? Can I, re- can I, can I have some tanks too? Can I have some weapons of mass destruction? <laughs> like, uh, is... This is not something that you would ask a foreign empire to do. But because of God's hand, Nehemiah has trust that no one else in the empire has. And that's what he refers to in verse 5. If it pleases the king, if I found favor in your sight, right? If, if you trust me, will you let me do this? You know, there's a lot of excuses Nehemiah could have used at this point. He could have said, God, this is not my battle to fight. Like, I'm needed here, right? I can have so much influence for good in the kingdom as long as I never say anything about you. So can I just lie low? Like, can I just have influence from this place? Or, you know, if the people in Jerusalem need a wall so much, they can, they can build their own wall, right? Uh, there are other people that you could send to do this. But, but of course they're not, right? This is the moment that God has prepared Nehemiah his whole life for. And he has a choice now of whether he's going to grab it or not. I'm so humbled by the risks that a lot of you guys take for God uh, every day and in your workplaces. And you know, some of them are obviously spiritual, right? You, you volunteer with VBS and take the risk of, of investing in kids' lives. You go on mission trips and you take the risk of going to a country you've never known before in order to tell people about Jesus. You take the risk of sharing your faith with a neighbor. But some of those risks, like Nehemiah's, aren't as obviously religious. 
but they are for God the same. You start a new business because you want to bring wholeness to a community that doesn't have a lot of investment in it. You decide to serve in civics and civic government or in city government in order to help people experience justice and well-being. You become a reporter who can hold powerful people to account. You participate in adoption or foster care so that kids can have a home. Like Nehemiah, you don't have to do this, but you recognize that God has prepared you for this moment. That even though you're busy, even though life is full, you can notice how your spiritual gifts, your heart, your attitudes, your, your abilities, they've all sort of brought you to this place. And then you have to decide whether you're going to jump or not. And in some ways, Nehemiah's participation is surprising. Like, you know when people who are privileged and have comfort, you know what they tend to do? Like, they tend to keep privilege and comfort. They don't tend to take risks like that. But Nehemiah recognizes that God has prepared him for this moment, that he's the only one who can do this. So he receives the permission and the funding from the king for this project. He takes it as a sign of God's blessing, which I love because he recognizes God's hand in his life, and he heads to Jerusalem. I imagine when he shows up in Jerusalem, it's kind of an odd scene. Remember, the last time the Persian army came to Jerusalem, it was not a good thing. It was not seen as a positive. And so he shows up, not wearing a name tag, not with, you know, an introduction, and he's dragging these giant logs behind him, and he's got a, a subsection of the Persian army together with him. And I imagine all the people, this isn't in the Bible, but I imagine uh, because he takes three days to explain what he's doing there, that there's a lot of whispering in town, like, hey, what's, what's this guy doing? Where does he come from? Like, what's his plan? Is he going to destroy it again? Is he mad about the temple? Is he going to build a temple to a foreign god? Like, why is he here? For three days, he doesn't tell anyone anything. He just inspects, he learns, he figures out what he's dealing with. And then in verse 17, he tells them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. <coughs> come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Those us's and we's in this passage are so huge because Nehemiah is identifying no longer with the people of Persia, but with his own people, with God's people. He's saying, your shame is my shame. Your problems are my problems. Nehemiah is going to rally the people to change this bad situation they've been accustomed to by becoming and identifying with them. He persuades them by pointing to why they have to do it. Some of you guys will be in a position sometimes where you have to motivate a group of people to change, maybe at work or in your family, maybe convince your parents to change something, maybe convince a ministry or a small group you're part of to change. And Nehemiah gives a really good model of how to do this here. Right? You've got to focus on the why. Like, why do we have to change? What are we going to achieve if we do this? And maybe most importantly, in Nehemiah's case, if we don't do this, what are we going to lose? Right? Some leaders call this a burning platform. Like, in order to convince people to jump, you have to convince them the platform's on fire, and if they stay here, they're going to get burned. And for Nehemiah, he gives them the burning platform. We can't stay here. Like, you've been accustomed to this burn, broken down wall for too long, right? You have to see change, and you have to see it now. And Nehemiah's case tells them why now is going to work. Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hand for the good work. Now, you might wonder, like, okay, if this wall is so self-evidently a good idea for Jerusalem, why has no one do it before? Like, why haven't people before said, you know what, it'd really help to have a wall here so that marauders don't steal my grandmother's harvest again this year? Well, there's some good reasons, right? Fear, fear of what people around them are going to do. 
We'll see through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, there was a lot of people who had a financial investment in the status quo, and they continually uh, harassed Nehemiah throughout the whole building process. It takes a leader that can rally people together, and also it takes funding. You know, for Nehemiah, he has access to the king's resources that no one else before him has had. And so because of that, in 58 days, Nehemiah is able to rally the people together to rebuild the whole wall of Jerusalem. Let me repeat that. In 58 days, right? How long did it take you to rebuild your bathroom? <laughs> Longer than that. I was talking to a couple guys who were in construction after the last service, and I said, why does it take so long to build the second PCH project if uh, it took 58 days to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem? They said, well, it's, you know, the ADA, it's the disability access, it's the elevators, it's, per- it's all permits. It's all the permits problem. Because of that, you know, I, I hope you're inspired by Nehemiah's story. Because I, I think in Nehemiah, we see someone who takes a great risk for God and in, at the other end of that sees a tremendous result. And I hope we see in Nehemiah a model for how we engage with our world as well. That, that we want to be people who identify the problems that are near to the heart of God and that we attack them with the same sort of zeal and enthusiasm Nehemiah does. Now, a, a warning about that, though. Sometimes um, American Christians in particular, in our zeal to help, have sometimes overstepped our bounds and have overstepped what's helping and actually hurt the people we were there to serve. Um, We've thought that we could identify the problem they're facing and we've decided, oh, we know the solution to that, and we've come in on a white horse and tried to solve it. Now, I don't don't say that to say that we should never do that or that missionary efforts are, are bad at all. They're very near to the heart of God. But I think in Nehemiah, we see a great example of someone who comes to people he knows, to a culture he understands, and rallies them to make changes that they value and are able to uh, help them bring about change from within. In fact, in chapter 3, we'll see that uh, the people of Israel each divide up, according to their families, sections of the wall, and they all rebuild it. It's their project. It's not the Persian army doing it for them. Um, It's better to be someone who rallies people to bring change and to bring... uh, to bring justice in their own community than to try to bring it from outside. Well, what happens after Nehemiah begins to build the wall? I wish I could say everyone was on his side, but of course they weren't. Right? Immediately there's opposition from those who are invested in the status quo. And if you try to take a great risk for God, or you try to do something great for God, this is probably going to be what happens in your life as well. Verse 19, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? We, we hear from these three guys over and over throughout Nehemiah. They're kind of the, the villains of the story, the ones who continually are heckling and harassing, threatening, even trying to murder Nehemiah. And their threats escalate in severity throughout the course of the book. And Nehemiah continually is courageous and stands up to them. And what I find striking about their ridicule is that they have a really good way of getting right at the heart of Nehemiah's potential places of insecurity, right? Are you rebelling against the king? You know, that's not really what they're concerned about, but they use that as a pretext to criticize him. But Nehemiah, one of the models I love about Nehemiah is he doesn't accept criticism from anyone he wouldn't take advice from. He doesn't allow people to tell him what to do who he would never want to hear their opinion. So he replies to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. When we try to do great things for God, we hear these same sorts of cynical objections. You're just in it for yourself. 
this isn't going to work. This won't make a difference, even if you accomplish it. You don't have the strength to pull this off. God doesn't care about this. We hear those from ourselves. We hear those from the enemy, maybe. We hear those from people around us. And over time, we can begin to believe him. So we see in Nehemiah an example of strengthening our hands and together with others, sticking to the work God's put in front of us. And as a result of the wall building, um, they are able to see the renewal of spiritual commitment among the people. You know, I said Nehemiah is a story about uh, how sometimes secular vocations can accomplish great spiritual purposes. And at the end of the rebuilding of the wall, there's this great celebration, this great renewal of the covenant by God's people because of what seemed like a secular project. So what do I want you to take away from this sermon? Of course, I want you to be like Nehemiah, right? Like, I want you to be someone whose heart breaks for the things that break the heart of God. I want you to be someone who acts on those, who's not just emotionally burdened by them, but, but does what is within your authority, who walks in the paths God makes for you in order to carry out what God's put in front of you to serve. And I want you to be someone who can rally others to that cause with you, who doesn't give in to critics, but can help lead people to accomplish great things for God. So, so I want you to be like Nehemiah. I want our church to be a church that reflects the heart of Nehemiah. But, but more than that in this story, I want you to see how Nehemiah points us to Jesus. Throughout this series, we've talked about how the Old Testament's purpose is to point us to Christ. And in Nehemiah, we see an example of what Jesus is going to be like. Because just like Nehemiah is someone who leaves privilege in order, to, uh, in order to go and help the oppressed, just as Nehemiah is the one who leaves the privilege of the citadel of Susa at the right hand of the king, Jesus is the one who leaves heaven at the right hand of God in order to come down in the form of human likeness and even to the point of being a baby born in a manger. Just as Nehemiah is the one who has all the resources of the king and enables uh, through those resources the people to accomplish something great, Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and gives that to us that we may accomplish the great commission. Just as Nehemiah is the one who has come to save Jerusalem from dishonor and shame, Jesus is the one who has come to save us from the shame of our sin. And just as Nehemiah perseveres in the face of criticism, Jesus is the one who experiences the fullest criticism and opposition, even to the point of his execution on the cross, and yet perseveres through that, is raised from the grave by his father and sits at the right hand of God in order that we might, in his footsteps, have the same sort of authority he had. Well, a couple questions for you to pray about and to discuss this week. As you think about your career, uh, your professional experiences, whatever those are, how has God used those to prepare you for what he's calling you to do in this new stage of your life, this next stage of your life? Secondly, um, what choices are in front of you this week where you'll have to choose between comfort and privilege on one side and choosing to engage in things that break the heart of God on the other? And then lastly, as you look to Jesus, the model of all of us as Christians, as you look at his choice to leave privilege and to serve, even to serve to the point of death on the cross. How does that give us hope for the calling in front of us this week? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Nehemiah's example. We thank you that he took on a challenge that so many of us would just wag our heads at and give up on. God, there are so many things that break your heart that we are confronted with every day and every week, and it can feel overwhelming. God, would you give each person here one project this week? one small project, one great project that they alone can do that you've prepared beforehand for them, not in order to earn your favor, but because they have your favor. Would you help us to um, be like Jesus, who gave up even so much more than Nehemiah so that we could know you? 
And may we follow him as little Jesus is walking in his footsteps. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad we get to take communion today because none of these things are things we could do in our own power. But we take communion as a reminder that Christ has accomplished everything.